Welcome to the Team Health Podcast program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series exploring the critical topic of opioid use disorders. All of you listening know that opioids have destroyed lives. Some of the earlier well-intentioned programs simply changed the addiction. Think methadone. But buprenorphine-based medications have been a game changer, literally a lifesaver when patients can be successfully engaged and enrolled in the programs. Even the best systems, like the bridge programs, can only work when there is a deep investment by caregivers and the community. We're going to discuss one of those successful programs. Joining us today is our expert, Dr. Stanton Elsrode. Stanton Elsrode is an emergency physician and the assistant medical director of the emergency department at the University of Tennessee Medical Center. He has an MBA and has used it to primarily focus on developing a medication-assisted treatment bridge between opioid use disorders uh, recognized in the emergency department and outpatient treatment. Per my understanding, this program has made a difference, saving lives. Stanton, thank you for joining the program. Thank you. It's great to be with you on a program that highlights opportunities beyond the bedside. Yep, this is really important. Stanton, would you briefly describe the scope of the problem and why you decided to get involved? Certainly. My team is out there to save lives, and we see people that are on the edge of death. Overdoses, uh, primarily from opioids, are the number one cause of death for those of working age in the U.S., but in Knoxville, Tennessee alone, there is one death per day for the past few years. As a full-time emergency physician, I've got to see these patients who are struggling regularly. The Knox County Overdose Fatality Fatality Review Committee, led by uh, Dr. Williams, noted that uh, the 125 deaths that we reviewed, there were 843 ER visits. Sadly, the system left them with a dead end. So we as administrators, docs, pharmacists, nurses, wanted a new standard of care for opioid use disorder. And at the University of Tennessee Medical Center in 2022, we just we did just that and have already sent over 100 patients. What do you mean you sent them over? So we've sent them over a bridge from our emergency department directly to uh, an office-based opioid treatment center, which we often refer to as an OBOT. Got it. So I know that when some people uh, develop programs, uh, that there's resistance, uh, sometimes blaming the patient or blaming the system. Plus, in the ED, we're all just frustrated with another person who appears to be harming themselves. Was there resistance in your department? And if so, can you tell us about it? Of course. Uh, the main concern from the doctors to the nurses to the C-suite is really, can we really even help these patients that are in cycles of despair? And we thought, you know, even if I do the right thing, will there be a system behind it to support it? So no one wanted to do anything unless it was comprehensive, unless it was complete, unless it was immediate. And so that's why we set it up as we did. You know, and many worried about what we call a suboxone merry-go-round. Uh, where they just keep coming back to the emergency department for the medicine to relieve their symptoms, but don't really get the comprehensive recovery care that they really need. And, you know, it takes two years to really rewire the brain after suffering from addiction for so long. And so we made sure 
that we had the comprehensive services given directly to them. And after uh, 270 days of following these people, we noticed that their ER visits and their hospitalizations are way down. So this is reducing uncompensated care for the hospital and most importantly, reducing their suffering so they can get the right treatment. So you describe comprehensive services. There are probably some people listening who don't really have a sense of what that means. Would you be willing to share that? Certainly. The main issue with someone who's dealing with addiction is, why did they cycle into this to begin with? There's sometimes a lot of uh, psychosocial trauma that was associated with them uh, starting an addiction. So to unravel this, you need a full team. You need social workers. You need case managers. You need an addiction medicine specialist who's a physician who can walk them through the physical side of things. And with this full team, you can start stabilizing their lives. So I assume that you and maybe some others are addiction medical specialists, but you're not there 24-7. So you sort of have to have a proxy and have other clinicians step up. How were you able to do that? Well, you know, our program went from zero docs to 100% of the docs quickly. And the reason we did this is because we had a full system that they felt supported them and that they could trust. The programs in the past have said, just hand out buprenorphine and the patients will figure out the rest. Well, that's not really true. Uh, When we looked at a national database study, only 28% actually got full comprehensive care. With our bridge, 98% are making it to the further care. And so that's why I think our docs are really jumping on board. But more importantly, we also have a full team of peer navigators who are helping people through their addictions and being at the bedside and hand-holding them right from the beginning. Dr. Van Zell, who's one of my co-champions on this project, rightfully calls them the secret sauce. (laughs) And the reason is, is they are there to really guide them through. These are people who have been in recovery from addiction themselves, and uh, they tell the message to the uh, patients that we do recover. So I want to give a shout out to Rachel, Kenitha, and Aaron and the rest of the growing crew that are helping us with this. Fabulous. Thank you for that. Uh, so some programs are not successful and uh, and yet they have, quote, a bridge. And you describe peer navigators. Uh, I assume that you're, figuratively speaking, having them walk the patient across that bridge. But bridge to what? Can you just clarify? Yeah, definitely. It has to be immediate. And as immediate as you can be in an ER is uh, within 24 hours. So what we did is we worked with our OBOT partner to make sure there was one spot saved per day so that our peer navigators, once they found someone who is ready to walk across that bridge, uh, we could use technology and drive them across, um, drive them to the treatment center so they would know where do they show up for their future care. You know, I don't think most people realize that people in addiction don't necessarily have a working phone or don't have internet access to schedule these things. And I think that's what a lot of bridges rely on is scheduling appointments. We don't rely on that one bit. So your dramatic improvement over the routine then is not relying on the patient to follow up on their own because we all know that they often don't, but actually walking them over or driving them over to the place and 
do they meet the people uh, there? Do they get enrolled at the time? And you said the percentage of success has been dramatic. So can you describe that? Yes. Yeah, so we offer this bridge to anyone who enters our emergency department. How do we find those people? Well, we have doctors who are looking to see if someone's suffering from opioid use disorder. We also have peer navigators who are noting when someone is suffering from opioid use disorder. They sometimes pick up on it first. They might be there at the bedside before we even make it to the bedside. And then they're guiding the doctor on on how we can send them uh, to uh, recovery. So this is a very important process um, and the, the critical component of this of this program is meeting people where they're at with someone who understands what they're going through. Stanton, you've had really remarkable now, as you describe, 100 uh, percent adoption among your staff. Um, how successful, and I think you mentioned it earlier, has this been with patients? So our patients end up choosing whether they want to go across the bridge. They have to have consent, right? Mm -hmm. So only about 50 percent say yes to us. But we want to be there when they say yes. And when they say yes, 98% of them make it to the office-based opiate treatment center. And then we're following them and we're seeing that they are staying with the program. There are still people who suffer from relapses. We note that about six months, it's down to 60% who continue with the program. But that's been the standard for other facilities. But the problem is, they weren't getting to the facility to begin with to even have that chance. You had said that there were it was a death a day in your general community, some of which I assume related to patients that were seen in your emergency department. What's happened with that number? We are starting to see that this is plateauing. What that means is during the 2020 pandemic and beyond, we actually see, saw an exponential growth in the amount of opioid overdoses. Slowly but surely, we are turning the tide. And I think that's just you know showing that we are finally finding the right treatments for these people suffering. But the thing is, I want the deaths to go immediately to zero. So we, we have a lot of work ahead of us. And just plateauing the amount of people passing away from this preventable disease is, is not what we need. So as my friend Jim George says it's not a sprint it's it's a marathon it's a it's a sustained effort uh with peer navigators and the kinds of programs you've described it sounds costly i understand that there are some new opportunities for funding can you discuss that yeah so first off we were blessed with supportive leadership at the university of tennessee medical center to set up our trial and get going without any external funding source but then the Tennessee Hospital Association, the Tennessee Department of Mental Health and uh, Substance Abuse gave us a grant funding to really get this off the ground. It really doesn't have to be that expensive. It is more about the initial startup when it comes to making the relationships between a hospital and a outpatient treatment center. And so that's what we really focused on doing so. And I became the Tennessee College of Emergency Physicians president. And with my goal is to spread this type of program horizontally across the state to all other ERs so that whoever comes in with opioid use disorder has an opportunity for this care. You're right. This can cost money to initially set up, 
So I'm proposing with the Opioid Abatement Council uh, a system to where we make that system set up quicker, where the OBOT meets the hospital and we discuss champions among the, the doctors, the nurses, the hospitalists, the pharmacists to all interconnect so that we can make sure that everyone's comfortable with this new standard of care. Well, congratulations on being the president of Tennessee ASAP. Uh, They're lucky to have you. You share such great passion and certainly experience. I I anticipate you will be successful. What are your thoughts on the, the future? I think this is the way we need to go about it. And I want to make sure we save as many lives as possible. I don't know if you've witnessed anyone in your family or or your friends that have passed away from it, but um, I certainly have. And um, one of my fellow Boy Scouts growing up overdosed after being in rehab and just getting one more hit. And uh, there happens to be a man in our community with the exact same name, also suffering from opioid use disorder. And I want him to be offered treatment every moment he seeks care in the emergency department to make sure that we can given the best chance of living a a better life. And I want to give you an example of one patient who has been a success within our program. He was actually one of the first patients uh, that we had in our program. And when I told one of my physicians that we were going to enroll this patient, he thought, you know, you need to be a better cherry picker for your program. You know, who would think that a patient who has been using drugs since middle school and currently lived with his drug dealer, his own brother, would recover. Well, he did recover, and the patient now works to keep others in recovery. He has a job, and uh, just just to see the smile on their faces and just the transformation that is hard for us to portray in a podcast because you, you can't get to see the smile on their face when they have this new life. That's what I want every physician to end up seeing. I can feel it as you're you're speaking about it. What a wonderful story from really being down and out to now helping others uh, recover. That's fabulous. Stan, uh, this has been a fabulous program. I want to thank you for your participation. Thank you so much for allowing me this opportunity to share this program. And I uh, appreciate what you do and getting physicians to think beyond the bedside. Uh, Because of people like you. I hope you've enjoyed this Beyond Clinical Medicine podcast describing the development of and commitment to a program that really does save lives. It provides those who have in the past been blamed for their situation and then forgotten with not only hope, but also the real opportunity to live a meaningful life of contribution. If you have any questions about this topic or suggestions for other topics, please contact me at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. That's at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you.